Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, let us begin with some time in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have granted to us the ability to have your word written down and preserved throughout the ages. That even now we live in a time when it is in our hands, it is on our phones, it is ubiquitous around us. And we pray that it wouldn't merely be near, but that it would penetrate our hearts the Holy Spirit would make it alive to us, that we would hear with ears of faith, that we would respond, that your will might be done as we hear it preached today. Grant this to us as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may be noticed in the bulletin, there is a typo as usual, and I'm not preaching a competing sermon with Brock from last week. Uh, to see who uh, can preach on uh, James chapter 3. But instead, as we have two weeks left together, I was speaking to a couple different pastors about, you know, what what might be a good way to end a time. And uh, my mentor and coach said, well, what do you want to leave people with? I couldn't help but think, at the end of every service, we say, As we prepare for the close of worship service, we leave with two things. First, a charge, and then a benediction. Oftentimes, Matthew 28 is used as our charge. It is indeed perhaps the most central charge of the New Testament, the the Great Commission. So this week, we'll be looking at the Great Commission as our charge. And next week, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 6, that we hear each week as the benediction. Now, this passage, as we come to it, is one that we are so familiar with. It's one that we've heard in many contexts. Perhaps you've gone to a missions conference, read a book. Oftentimes, the Great Commission is one in which we are very familiar. And oftentimes, when we have a passage that's very familiar to us, it begins to take on connotations that aren't necessarily fully accurate. Or maybe focusing on one thing instead of the other. Or perhaps you've heard it so many times, it just kind of glazes over us as we hear it. Perhaps you've heard sermons on Matthew 28 that have beat you up into wanting to become a missionary. And so when we hear these words, we've become a bit jaded. But I thought it would be helpful for us to dig into this passage together as this charge and to really just do kind of a inductive Bible study, if you will, the who, what, where, when, why, how of the Great Commission. Indeed, this is the end of Matthew's gospel. This is the finality of what Jesus has told his disciples to do as they have been 
following him and waiting to see what was going to happen next. And now Jesus has risen from the dead, and this is the charge that he gives to his people. Matthew places it at the end because of its significance, because of its centrality, because this is now the pinnacle of his gospel message. That the ministry of Jesus is going to continue on in this way. If the church is going to be about one thing, you might expect it to be the thing that Jesus left his disciples with. So let's look at our passage together today. First, I want us to answer the question, who is the Great Commission for? Now, some people might say the Great Commission is universal. It's meant for everybody, everybody, right? You might go to that missions conference and everybody is supposed to be a missionary. That is the goal of the Christian life is to be uh, a missionary in a remote area, an unreached people group in a hut, right? You're learning the language and you're translating scripture. That's the most spiritual thing you could possibly do. And that is meant for every single person. Now, that's one extreme. That is probably an error. Now, the other extreme is to say, well, look, Jesus is just saying this to his 11 disciples. Judas is left, and these 11 are left, uh, and Jesus is telling them. So really, this is only for the apostles, or maybe just for clergy, church leadership, those who are in an office of elder. There's some helpful truth to that, but it is also an extreme position to say this is only a very narrow command given to a very narrow audience. So let us think about who this is for. Well, we're told that it is for these 11 disciples, right? Uh, Now, these are men who have been hiding away in a house, afraid that they might be, uh, you know, brought up on the same types of things Jesus was brought up, and their lives may be in peril. The fact that these 11 disciples show up is probably indicative that these are probably the only people willing to go meet him on the mountain. But beyond that, we know that there is a continuing ministry that's happening here because, what are we told? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, maybe they thought the end of the age would be within their lifetime, but as we know now, 2,000 years later, that has not yet transpired. And so if it was merely for the 12 disciples, well, they better be pretty old guys nowadays. Or we must infer that there is an ongoing requirement of the church, that this charge did not end in the first century, did not end with these 11 men. Instead, it has continued on, and the promise extends beyond Jesus' disciples. We can often think of other passages in Scripture that are uh, pointed at particular people, and we have no problem applying those to ourselves. As long as it's a good thing that I want to do, of course, That applies to me as well. And then when we come to a passage that might be a challenge to us, a charge is kind of a challenge. This is the battle cry of Jesus for his disciples going out into the world to do difficult things, to perhaps face obstacles. And so when we see things like that, we like to take a more conservative approach to how it applies. So even though it is true that this is directly given to the 11 disciples, I believe the text and generally our way of interpreting Scripture, would certainly not leave us off the hook. Well, that being said, what do we know about the disciples in this passage? So if it's the disciples, let's say it's even a broader 
you know, definition of those who belong to Jesus, who are following him, who are engaged in what he's doing. Well, we're told in verse 17, they saw Jesus. They came to the mountain where he told them and they saw him. And what do they do? They do two things. First, they worship him. Now, there's a pretty significant shift that's happened here. Along the way, they were unsure about who Jesus was. There was these little glimpses of Jesus being worshipped by the disciples along the way in different gospel accounts. But now, risen from the dead, revealed himself to his disciples, they understand that Jesus is himself God. That he is the proper object of worship. And it is their immediate response when they come into his presence to fall down before him. He doesn't rebuke them. Indeed, we're told not much about Jesus' response to them, only what some of them were thinking. So they, they worshipped Jesus. This is the beginning of the Great Commission. It is rooted in worship. And yet we also see some doubted. Now, this might be an allusion to Thomas, who doubted just a few you know, stories ago. He needed to see Jesus' hands. He needed to put his hand in the side of Jesus in the wound. It may be an allusion to Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times. It may be the sense that they all had as they hid in a house, thinking that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. And yet in the midst of their doubt, they are still worshiping. Now, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had times of doubt in my life. I think most people, if they're honest, have doubts along the way. And it is a great error for us to think that disciples are those who have 100% no doubt about the truths of who Jesus is and what it really means for them. Indeed, that is why we must come each week to be reminded. That is why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a remembrance. Because each week, as our sinful hearts are prone to doubt, he reminds us. So Jesus isn't giving this commission to people who are zealous, 100% committed, ready to go. They are like soldiers going out to war. I'm not so sure it's a great idea. We're not sure the content of their doubt, whether or not they are doubting Jesus' resurrection. It seems like it's pretty obvious at this point that Jesus has brought some validity to his resurrection, being present with them. But there's some doubt in their mind about what's really happening here. Is this really true? think that shows us some grace we have doubts notice that is the doubts don't prevent them from worship they don't prevent them from God giving them this charge so who we have disciples who are doubtful worshipers and what are they called to do well oftentimes that Missions conferences, you might see the Great Commission on a big sign that says, Go! 
Indeed, that's the first thing we read. But the main verb in this command is to make disciples. Make disciples is the command. The Great Commission is to make disciples. What is a disciple? One, we talked about this sometimes as we've considered evangelism and outreach. We're taking people who are not disciples, those who are not learning, not in communion with God, not growing in their understanding and in their love for God and one another. And instead, we want to make them into disciples, those who are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, those who are being taught Those who are becoming like these 11 disciples, maybe with doubts along the way, but indeed are part of a long, lifelong process that God is doing in and through his church. So they're supposed to make disciples. How do they make disciples? So go. Better way to think of that is as you go. As you go, make disciples. Now, what's interesting about this is it requires an active participation. Oftentimes, once we get churches up and going or once we have ministries happening, we no longer have an active face out. Instead, we assume we can take a passive posture and people will merely come to us. But that is not what Jesus' commission here is. It involves us going. We are no longer waiting. Remember, these disciples have been told time and time again by Jesus, my hour is not yet come. Now is not the time. I'm not supposed to go yet. Now, they go. They don't wait. In the times past, as the people of God and Israel were there, they had a process to bring uh, converts into the community of God's people. It is very passive. Part of the shift in the new covenant is that we are to go. That we're supposed to make disciples of people who are out there to get in their business. To not passively be a witness, but to be actively engaged in making these disciples. Remember our sermon from last week, Psalm 14. No one seeks after God. Not one. None does good. If our approach Commissions, if our approach to the Great Commission is to passively be available, we will be left wanting. So we are supposed to go. We are supposed to be actively engaged. This is something we are striving towards. The Apostle Paul says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. To go out there and find the people who need to be reconciled. And so as they go, as they make disciples, how do they make disciples? We're told two things. We're supposed to baptize and teach. Now, baptism as a disciple-making process seems a little bit odd. We don't think uh, that that's going to cause any sort of growth in them necessarily as, you know, we have this modern understanding of just kind of this thing we do. But what we see here is twofold. First, we are united. We have been given the name of the triune God. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are united in the full work of the Trinity as the one who is 
making disciples through the ministry of his church. And ultimately, I think that's the primary point here is baptism is not merely some sort of uh, ritualistic thing we go through on our own as individuals. Baptism requires church membership. It is the entrance gate into the church. When they are baptized, they are baptized by God's appointed leadership. They've become members. They have been marked as set apart from those who are outside. In hostile places to the gospel, particularly in Muslim countries, persecution truly doesn't come until you are baptized. Because you've been marked, set apart. You've become a member of that. Baptism, making disciples, is bringing them in to the church. Having them be part of the number of God's people here on earth. But not just that. Oftentimes the Great Commission is uh, identified with, you know, great Billy Graham crusades or whatever happens out there. We go make decisions for Christ. And perhaps maybe even they would baptize people at those events. But disciples aren't made in a moment. Because we're told they have to be baptized. Well, first you're probably going to have to teach them about baptism. But beyond that, we are supposed to teach them everything to observe all that I have commanded you. I don't think we could fully grasp everything that Jesus commanded and the fullness of the teaching in our entire lifetime. So it would be wrong for us to think that this teaching is merely a weekend class for new believers, a membership class in a church, but that the work of making disciples, indeed, these men here are called disciples. They are still learning and growing. They still have doubts. But they have the words of Jesus. And this is what they are to share. So they're supposed to make disciples as they're going. We see many of these disciples here, they don't really go very far. Most of them stay in, you know, Israel. They kind of become the pastors of the church, of the Jewish church. And eventually we see Paul rise up and he kind of becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. And he kind of goes out further. But they didn't just sit by waiting for things to happen. They went out. Stephen stood up and he preached even though it eventually led to his death. They were actively engaged in the mission to make disciples. They were baptizing people who were coming to faith. They were teaching them everything that Jesus had taught them and commanded of them. So who the disciples who worship with doubts, what they're supposed to make disciples, where we've already hit on it a couple times, as they go, everywhere as they go. But we're also told in verse 19 that they are supposed to go to all nations. Now the word nations also just refers to all types of ethnicities, right? What's happening at this point in time is everybody in the church up to this date, maybe with some exceptions, are all descendants of Abraham. They're all Jewish converts to what is now known as Christianity. One of the other aspects of the New Covenant, it is not an ethnic religion. It is for all of the world. They are to go to all the nations, all of the ethnicities, every type of person 
There is no longer unclean food. There is no longer unclean people. God has called individual people from all sorts of places, all sorts of backgrounds. And so where? The answer is everywhere. We think about where for us, indeed, God does raise up from our midst missionaries to go far off places. But most of us live relatively ordinary lives, and the places we go might not be very far away. Indeed, they start in our own home as we make disciples of our own children, as we are engaged in a discipleship relationship by ourselves in the midst of our own church. It extends to our workplace and our extended family. It's not some theoretical place out there we must go to. It is wherever we go. Who, what, where, when, now. Verse 19. Jesus had his disciples waiting. Now is the time to go. They've wondered. They've waited. They've been eager to go at times, scared to go at others. And now Jesus is releasing them. He is leaving them with this command. The mission begins here. There was glimmers of it, shadows of it as it came about, as Jesus sent out the 70. And they came back and they gave a report and Jesus used that to train them for ultimately here, the Great Commission. Because he is leaving, now is the time for the church to rise up. And not only is it now, not only is it just these 11 disciples now, but we see... Verse 20, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The perpetual nature of the Great Commission, that it is now, today, this minute, this hour, making disciples must always be at the forefront of what the people of God are about. It is what Jesus has given us as the great task. It is where he has promised to be with us. And so it starts now. And the next day, and the next day, and every day, until Jesus returns and we see the end of the age. Why? The text doesn't really tell us why. I think we can answer that a number of different ways. I think we can, for one thing, from this text... It gives us a definition of what a disciple is and does. Um, One missionary, I'm not exactly sure where the quote originates from, it says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Why? Because disciples worship Jesus. And he is worthy to receive all honor and glory and praise. Why? Why? Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why? Because Jesus commanded them to do it. At a very basic level, here is the great commission. This is the obedience. He's calling them to go and teach people to obey everything he commanded him. And this is one of those things. They want to follow what Jesus has for them. They want to respond in faith, knowing that this is where Jesus is calling them to go and what to do. 
Well, the reason why is because Jesus is leaving. The three years he spent proclaiming the kingdom, discipling these men here, has come to an end. But we are entering into the age of the Holy Spirit, where they will go forth and they will continue on the ministry that Jesus began. And indeed, Jesus says, you will see even greater things done. They are continuing on. They are taking the next step forward as Jesus leaves them, not as orphans, but as those who have been empowered by his spirit to go. So we think about these things, who, what, where, when, why, right? And we think about all the times that we've heard these verses, and we think about all the times that we haven't done these things, and it can become this great burden for us. I remember going to a church once, and the pastor was so cynical about the lack of evangelism. You could just hear it in his voice as he preached on these types of passages. It's very off-putting. When we hear these words, it ought to be a challenge to us. That's part of the word of God dividing us. Challenging our comfort. Calling us to do something. Obedience to Christ rather than our own fleshly desires. But that's not the grace we find in this passage. Remember how this started. We skipped over verse 18. Jesus came to them. What is the first thing he says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus' authority is total. It's not just authority over Israel. It's not just authority over these disciples. It's not just authority over the church. It's not just authority over the Middle East. It's not just authority around the world. It is all authority from heaven to earth. And it has been given to him, the one who has conquered even death itself. He has all authority. As one with all authority, we see in the next phrase... Therefore, because all authority has been given to me, because I am the one with all power and authority, because I am in control of all things, because I am the King of kings and Lord of lords, therefore, you can go. And I don't know what their itinerant ministries look like. For Stephen, he went and he preached and he died. And we're greatly encouraged by the words he spoke. Because he trusted in God's authority. He knew that whether in life or in death, his only comfort in life was his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That he was caught up in this greater mission. It wasn't because he wanted to just be the good, obedient Sunday school student. It's because he understood who Christ was. He saw his authority. He lived in that. I 
We read about the Great Commission and we feel weak. We feel unable. We feel disqualified. We have doubts. These men have doubts. These are the kind of people that God has called to fulfill his mission. It's when we are weak that he is made strong, that his work is perfected so that we don't boast in all of the great things we did. All of the great you know, marketing strategies, all of the cunning you know, things that we come up with to do. No, when the disciples go out in the Great Commission, what they see is not the works of their hands, but the unexplainable work of God's Spirit making disciples. People turning from their sin. The whole, the whole commission is done in God's authority. How is it done? It's done because Christ is in control. Beyond that, we might give some sort of check mark to that. Yes, I understand God's in control, and so we can go. Perhaps we need to meditate on that more and become more convinced to work out some of our doubts. But I think the most helpful thing that Jesus says is the close of this verse. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Different church traditions talk about how God is present with his people. And that's big debate about communion and where Christ is present and how he's present and how we participate and what benefits there are. We talk about it as ordinary means of grace, that it is the preaching and reading of God's word. It is prayer. It is baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the places that God has promised to meet with his people. I see a promise right here. This is a means of grace. Do we want to know where we can meet with God? Indeed, that is what we are doing here today. But he is with us as we go. It's not special building. It's not anything like that. God is at work in the mission of making disciples. Doubtful worshipers going to make disciples, teaching people going to uncomfortable places now and in the days ahead for God's glory and in obedience to what he has commanded us to do. And it is in the midst of all of those things, in the midst of all of our doubts, in the midst of our cynicism, as we step out and make a disciple, Christ is with us. We will be afraid. It will be uncomfortable. We won't trust that he is really in authority. But he is with us. It is the greatest joy to be in the presence of God. And so that is why we look at the things in Scripture that remind us of these are the places where he particularly meets with us. And it is here, the mission of Christ to make disciples of all nations that he has promised to be with you, to be with me. Whether that is in our homes, whether it's in our neighborhoods, and our workplaces. Whether you sign up with Mission to North America and Mission to the World and go to some crazy place. Christ is present. Christ is at work. And we can rest in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a charge.
Uh, It is impossible in our own strength to accomplish it. And yet you have the authority and the power. And that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you are present with us as we go. As we teach, as we bring people into the church, as we see you at work. Changing hearts, transforming lives, making people into worshipers. Lord, help us with our doubts. Help us to worship you. Help us to be obedient. But Lord, help us to see and to feel your presence with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.